the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 1, page 957 if you're using a pew Bible. Matthew chapter 1. You know, for uh, many, many people, the Christmas season is a fantasy time. They decorate their homes with thousands, yea, hundreds of thousands of twinkling lights. And in the process, they create an illusion, I think, of a winter wonderland in which there are no problems, no concerns. Even Christmas cards tend to portray this idyllic setting, don't they? You get those beautiful snowscapes or the lovely manger scenes. And it looks like everything is just perfect in the world. But nothing could be further from the truth, huh? Life is raw and life is ragged. People are bent, twisted, often broken by the ravages of sin. It is humanity's universal problem. No matter where you go, far and wide, rich or poor, it doesn't matter. All have been devastated by sin and its consequences. And beloved, it's a problem that we cannot overcome on our own. We cannot. But it's not as though we have no hope. Into this world of despair, God sent forth His Son. That is the Christmas message. And he announced that amazing reality to Joseph through an angel. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, it's right there on the front of your bulletin. Chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Why don't you dig that bulletin out? In fact, you know what? Let's do it this way. Let's read it together. Right on the front of your bulletin. This is it. This is Christmas. Joseph, son of David, join me. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Wow. That is Christmas. That is Christmas. It is the story of God's amazing grace. Amazing grace. And you know, God's grace is an amazing thing. For example, uh, 31 years ago, I knew a young man who was a militant atheist. And who would have ever thought that that foolish young man would be standing before you this morning Preaching the word of the risen Lord, huh? God's grace is an amazing thing. An amazing thing. Because it overcomes sin. It overcomes sin. This morning I want to highlight that for you. As we preach our Christmas message, I want to highlight for you four examples of God's grace in the lineage of the Messiah. So that we will remember that He overcomes even the most checkered past. 
Matthew 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16. Matthew 1, 1 through 16. The genealogies. The genealogy. And and to the modern reader, this is really a, a, a rather extraordinary way to begin a gospel. Leading it off with a list of names. How boring. How unappealing. What a barrier it is to, to encourage someone to read this thing. You know, it's easy to regard this section of Matthew's gospel, particularly for us moderns, as uh, the flyover zone. Flyover zone. That, the temptation is to just skim right over it very quickly or to perhaps not even read it at all. But there is a rich deposit of spiritual truth in this genealogy, and I want to look at it with you this morning. You know, each of the gospel writers, and there are four of them, they record a selection of words and deeds from the life of Jesus Messiah. They have a very definite purpose in what they write down. They have an intended audience in mind. They're writing to a particular group of people and they're communicating something about Messiah. And so they're very careful in choosing what it is they choose. Only two of the four Gospels actually include a genealogy. Mark's Gospel, where the Messiah is presented as the suffering servant, has no genealogy. Because after all, who cares where a slave comes from? It doesn't matter. John's gospel also contains no genealogy where he presents Jesus as son of God. And of course, God has no genealogy. He descends from no one. But Luke and Matthew do. They both have genealogies. Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man. And so his genealogy runs all the way back to Adam. Matthew's gospel presents Jesus as the great Davidic king, the long-awaited one, the one that the prophets spoke of. And so he contains a genealogy in his gospel, a genealogy that begins with both Abraham and David. The Jews were very, very concerned about genealogical records, unlike you and I. It was important to them. For example, as they entered into the land after the conquest, it was important to determine for the distribution of the land what tribe a person came from because there were certain lands set aside for the people of different tribes. And so the place of your residence was determined by your genealogy. You had to know. Under the Old Testament law, a priest was required to be able to prove his genealogy all the way back to Aaron. And if he could not do that, then he was disqualified from the Old Testament priesthood. And so knowing where you came from was a very important thing to the first century Jew. At the time of Jesus, these genealogical records were kept by the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Israel, and we, will believe, we believe they were subsequently destroyed in the burning of the temple in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem. But genealogical records played a very important role in the life of the nation. Matthew's genealogy establishes the right of Jesus to rule and reign over the kingdom of David. 
It proves his descent through his adopted father, Joseph. That he is in line for the Davidic throne. Matthew organizes this genealogy for us into three groups of 14. Three groups of 14 names. He doesn't give us every single name from Abraham on. He skips over a few and he does so in order to to have this balanced symmetry. These three groups of 14 names. We think that he did this partly to aid in memorization. It made it just a little bit easier to memorize the descent of the Messiah by grouping it like this. But also, beyond that, it indicates the three great periods of time in the history of the nation of Israel. Each of these groupings speaks of a great time. It begins with uh, Abraham. It begin, in verse 2, for example, it starts with Abraham, and it runs there all the way to David. That's the first grouping, Abraham to David. And it speaks of the founding of the nation until its first great king. The nation began with Abraham, and it ran to David as its first great king. That's the first period of the nation's history. After that, it runs in the genealogy of Matthew from David to the destruction of the monarchy. That is, Israel's dark ages. When Israel fell from her pinnacle of glory, when she was devoted to God until she had fallen into into pagan apostasy and was eventually swept away in the Babylonian captivity. These are the dark ages of the nation of Israel. And so it's from David to the destruction of the monarchy, second grouping. Third grouping is from the destruction of the monarchy to the arrival of Messiah. From the destruction to the arrival of Messiah. From the lowest point in the history of the nation to its greatest point. That is the arrival of its Messiah. Israel's hope and consolation. So Matthew gives us these groupings. And every link in this great chain from the wicked as well as the devout. Remarkably demonstrate the providence of God down through the centuries. So with that as a little bit of an overview, let's read this genealogy Matthew chapter 1 beginning in verse 1 the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham to Abraham was born Isaac and to Isaac Jacob and to Jacob Judah and his brothers and to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar and to Perez were born Hezron and to Hezron Ram and to Ram was born Aminadab, and to Aminadab, Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. And to Obed, Jesse. And to Jesse was born David the king. And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And to Solomon was born Rehoboam, and to Rehoboam, Abijah. And to Abijah, Asa. And to Asa was born Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, Joram. And to Joram, Uzziah. And to Uzziah was born Jotham. And to Jotham, Ahaz. And to Ahaz, Hezekiah. And to Hezekiah was born Manasseh. And to Manasseh, Ammon. And to Ammon, Josiah. And to Josiah were born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel, and Shealtiel Zerubbabel, and to Zerubbabel was born Abihud, and to Abihud Eliakim, and to Eliakim Azor, 
And to Azor was born Zadok, and to Zadok, Akim, and to Akim, Eliud. And to Eliud was born Eliezer, and to Eliezer, Mathan, and to Mathan, Jacob. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. The royal lineage of Messiah. Descended from Abraham, the first Jew, descended of, from David, the great king. Now, this, is, this genealogy is an interesting genealogy in many ways, but not the least of which is that it contains four women along with the men. And this, the inclusion of women's names in a genealogy, a Jewish genealogy, is a very unusual thing. It's not common at all to include the names of women. But what raises it beyond just the unusual to the absolutely remarkable is when we pause and reflect upon the backgrounds of the four women who find themselves listed here in the pedigree of Messiah. These four women. All four of these women were Gentiles. They were Gentile women. Three of them were polluted by shameful wickedness. And the fourth was from a people group that had been banned from the ranks of Israel. So these four Gentile women, polluted in their life and background, find their way into the genealogy of the great Davidic king, the Messiah. It's astounding. It's obvious that Matthew includes them for a purpose. He lists their names here for a purpose. What purpose? Why, Matthew, do you give us the names of these women? What is it you want us to learn from observing the inclusion of these women? I think the purpose is twofold for us this morning. I would suggest to you a twofold purpose. The first part is this these are Gentile women. And along with the Magi that appear in chapter 2, who come from Persia and are Gentiles as well, and along with the Roman centurion that appears in Matthew chapter 8, and along with the Canaanite woman who wants to eat the crumbs that fall from the table in Matthew chapter 15, that Matthew is giving us a very vivid illustration of Jesus' final words of this gospel. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I think Matthew includes these women's names, these Gentile women names, along with those other illustrations of faith so that we might understand what it means to go to all the nations and make disciples of them. But I think he has a, another purpose beyond that. And that's the one I want to focus on this morning. The other purpose in including these four women's names in this genealogy is that they display the grace of God. I've entitled this sermon, Grace Upon Grace Upon Grace Upon Grace. Because that's what it's all about. It is all about the grace of God. And it is almost, beloved, it is almost as if in order to highlight the grace of God that Matthew scours the pages of the Old Testament looking for the most shameful and unlikely possible candidates he can find. And then brings them forward 
as part of this genealogy. No clearer illustration can be found for Jesus' statement to the Pharisees. They recorded in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners. So there could be no more vivid illustration of what it means to call sinners than it is in the lives of these four women. So Matthew includes them for us, I believe, for that purpose. The first woman that we need to look at here in a little bit of detail to kind of flesh this out is in verse 3. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar. She is the first woman that Matthew introduces into the pedigree of Messiah. Tamar was the wife of Judah's son, Ur. Now, what's interesting here is that when Matthew thinks about Judah and reminds his readers about Judah, he, he doesn't recount the amazing prophecy in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10, where the prophet says that you are the one of your brothers will praise. The scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. He doesn't include the great prophecy that Messiah will come through Judah. He doesn't tell us that. Neither does he recount for us Judah's moving speech when he offers his own life and substitute for his brother, Benjamin, right? When they're down in the captivity there, or before the captivity, rather, in Egypt. What Matthew includes under divine inspiration, what he thinks about when he thinks about Judah is Judah's immoral union with his daughter-in-law. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 38. And be reminded, page 41, if you're using a pew Bible. Be reminded. Matthew chapter 38. The sordid tale of Tamar. 38, beginning in verse 1. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at uh, Kezeb that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as her brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother, the Leverite marriage. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his so when it came about that he went into his brother's life, he, wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was so displeasing in the sight of God that God took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. 
And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And it was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Eniam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, Therefore, I will send you a kid from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? Collateral is what she wanted. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and, she, and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the kid by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who is by the road of Aniam? But they said, There is no temple prostitute. There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of that place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this kid, but you did not find her. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them. And he said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch that I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. And it came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on the hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. And afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand. He was named Zerah. What an amazing account. An amazing account. Matthew pulls this forward, reminding of all of these details in his genealogy by the inclusion of the name Tamar. This channel of iniquity, incest, prostitution, a Canaanite woman, through all of this passes the Savior of the world according to His humanity. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Matthew includes for us another example. He says to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. Rahab. Now, when Rahab's name appears in the Bible, most people think 
She has a last name, but it's actually a title. Rahab the harlot, right? Rahab the harlot. This is an amazing story as well. Because God's grace not only spared Rahab's life when, when Jericho was destroyed, but he brought her into the messianic line. Turn to Joshua chapter 2. And let's be reminded of this. Joshua chapter 2, page 224. Joshua 2, beginning in verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I did not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to, to uh, Sihon and to Og, whom you utterly destroyed, which, by the way, was 40 years before this. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. And she said to them, Go to the hill country, lest the pursuers happen upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterwards you may go on your way. And the men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us to swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house of your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And it shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute. Where do spies go when they want information about a city? They go to the house of the prostitute because that's where people come and talk. 
And so they went there in order to gather intelligence for the coming invasion of the land. But what's the amazing thing is that this prostitute has become a follower of Yahweh, of the God of Israel. And so she confesses this great profession of faith here that she wants to follow the one true God. And she demonstrates the reality of her faith by protecting these spies and enabling them to carry out their mission. A follower of Christ, a follower of God. And brought into the messianic line. She becomes the wife of Salmon and the great, great grandmother of King David. The New Testament looks back on this lady as an example of faith in the one true God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 says, By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. What else do you have for us, Matthew? We have Tamar. We have Rahab. Verse 5, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. Now we have the story of Ruth. Now Ruth's life itself is a life of virtue. It is the origin of her people that makes her exceedingly noteworthy as an illustration of the grace of God. Ruth is a Moabitess. A Moabitess. She is from the people of Moab. This people group was produced by the incestuous union of Lot with his oldest daughter. Recorded for us in Genesis chapter 19, verses 27 to 38. I'm not going to turn you there. But this is the origin of the people of Moab. Born out of incest. But it goes deeper than that. Because Moab was one of the most persistent enemies of the nation of Israel, the Moabites. Because they refused to sell food and water to Israel after they had come out of Egypt in the Exodus... And instead, they hired Balaam to curse the nation. God excludes them from the descendants, or their descendants rather, the Moabites. He excludes them from the right of citizenship among the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. Just listen. God says, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Penthor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Born of an incestuous union, in direct opposition to the people of God, not in a passive opposition, but in an active opposition to the point where they would even hire somebody to curse the nation of the Moabites. It's out of this background that we get the story of Ruth and such an amazing portrayal of the grace of God. Ruth chapter 1. Turn to Ruth chapter 1. Page 278. 
Ruth 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in, in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Alimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Mahalon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Alimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Mahalon and Kilion also died, and the woman uh, was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in a house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? I have yet... Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. What an amazing story. An amazing story. Out of this background of incest and hostility is this young girl, Ruth. Demonstrating her faith in the God of Abraham, the God of Israel, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. She attaches herself to the God of Israel through true faith. And in the providence of God, she ends up in the line of the Messiah. She becomes the great grandmother to David the king. Grace upon grace upon grace. Upon grace. And then we arrive at the last. Verse 6, Matthew says, And to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. He doesn't even include her name. Bathsheba is her name. 
married to Uriah the Hittite. Most likely a Hittite herself, a Gentile woman. She's just simply referred to here by Matthew as her who had been the wife of Uriah. What a sordid story this woman's life makes up. Yet she too finds herself in the line of the Messiah. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, page 327. 2 Samuel 11, beginning in verse 1, page 327. By the way, I love to hear these turning pages. I love it. Because that means that there's a congregation of people here who have the Word of God in their hands and they are actively involved in, in pursuing it. Love that sounds. All right. Second Samuel 11, beginning in verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. At this moment in time, David has a problem, a huge problem. Rather than confess his guilt and his iniquity, he decides to cover it up, doesn't he? And so he arranges to have Uriah, one of his most faithful soldiers, murdered. Placed at the front of the battle line and then the troops withdraw from behind him, leaving him alone to be killed by the enemy. David engineers his execution, hoping somehow to cover his sin. After his Widow Bathsheba grieves and mourns the appropriate period of time, the death of her husband. Then David takes her into his harem as a wife. Chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her and lay with her. And she gave birth to a son, and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet, and he named him Jedidiah. For the Lord's sake. Solomon. Next link. In the lineage of Messiah. Grace. Upon grace. Upon grace. Upon grace. Tamar. Pregnant through an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law. Rahab. A harlot. Who becomes a true follower of Yahweh. Ruth, from a lineage that began in incest and was so accursed of God that they were cut off from the assembly of Israel, brought in by faith in Israel's Messiah. Bathsheba, adulteress, 
mother of Solomon, next in line for the throne. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. What do we do with this? What do we do with these amazing stories? How do I apply this to my life today? What do I, what do I walk out of here on a less than a week before Christmas? Let me suggest some things for you. First, recognize that God rules His world by providence. He rules over His world by providence. Overcoming the evil of mankind both in general and sin specifically. Can you imagine if this was your lineage? Yet these ones find themselves in the pedigree of Messiah, in the providence of God. Beyond that, recognize this. If God's grace extends to sinners, great sinners like these women, then it extends to you. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater, or excuse me, from the greater to the lesser. If he can overcome the sin in the background of these four women and bring them into the line of Messiah by which he will produce the Savior of the world in his humanity. If he can redeem them and their lives. Then he can do the same for you. What I'm saying to you is your background, your upbringing, whatever it is, however bad it is, it doesn't place you beyond the reach of the hand of God. That's a salvation message. That's a Christmas message. It doesn't matter what you have done. What has been done to you. You are still not beyond the grace of God. But beyond that... We need to recognize that although the grace of God overcomes sin, there may still be consequences. There may still be consequences. Old sin casts long shadows. Old sin casts long shadows. The consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba brought untold heartache into his family. There may be things in your past that God overcomes in His grace to draw you to Himself and to save you, but that doesn't mean that He's going to erase the consequences. Sometimes we have to live with a lot of pain that just comes as a result of sinful decisions we've made in the past, and sometimes it's sinful decisions that others have made and we're the recipients of. And, you know, we need to, we need to look at the world with our eyes wide open. We need to acknowledge it. God's grace overcomes. He redeems. He provides the ability for a new life in Christ and to walk in in the power of the Spirit and to overcome many, many things. But there may be some stuff that just continues to haunt you. But be of good cheer. 
Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And in Christ Jesus, you too will experience that overcoming. And the day when He invites you into His presence forever. And finally, we have the illustration of Ruth and Rahab who appear later in the Scriptures as outstanding examples of individuals who have overcome their past, who have turned from their past, and who have embraced the God of Israel. That is probably the most encouraging thing of all. Because you know what? You can too. You can too. God extends His invitation to you this morning. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am humble and gentle. You'll find rest for your soul. The Christmas message is that the grace of God is available to you right now. Right now. Have you experienced that amazing grace? Is that your experience this Christmas? Do you know the amazing grace of God in your life? Have you experienced grace upon grace upon grace upon grace? If you haven't, I invite you to come to the lighted cross over here. Come to that cross. Let us open the Bible with you and show you specifically how you can know and receive the gift of eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is my prayer that you would experience the greatest Christmas gift imaginable. Life everlasting. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank You for the encouragement from this section of Matthew's Gospel as we were reminded of the lives of these four women. Lives that have been bent and twisted and torn and bruised, battered by sin. Lives in which, by extension, our Father, we can find ourselves, we can identify. Maybe not in the exact specific acts, but we have our Father ourselves experience the devastation of sin in our own lives. And yet in Your grace, You overcame sin. That these ones might appear in the lineage of the Messiah. That His forefathers are, as it were, not perfect people. Sinners. Saved by grace. Our Father, we as His children are the same. Not perfect people. Sinners saved by grace. We thank You for the grace of God this time of year. As we reflect upon that great gift that His name shall be called Jesus because it is He who will save His people from their sin. We thank You, our Father, in the name of the risen Savior Christ. Amen.